This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. The artisans here at the San Diego Opera Scenic Shop are hard at work building a new set designed by Ralph Funicello of an opera that, as far as we can tell, has had only one production in the U.S. That gives the company a lot of leeway in terms of design. There's no real tradition in the production of this opera like there is, let's say, for Tosca or La Traviata. So the look will be just as refreshing as the sound of this wonderful work. What's it all about, you may ask? Well, there was a huge controversy in England at the end of the 12th century that caused a rift in the relationship between the king, Henry II, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, the primate of the church in the British Isles. Now, under normal circumstances, all citizens, property, things related to the state were under the power of the king. And also, under normal circumstances, all things spiritual were under the guidance, protection, and direction of the church in Rome, specifically the pope, the head of the church. This included the church's property, its churches and wealthy abbeys, and the lives of its vast communities of monks and nuns, as well as all things theological. Church and state were obviously on track for a major confrontation on the issue of legal jurisdiction. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say a priest commits murder or is suspected of some other capital crime. In 12th century England, Who had the power to try him? Surely a capital crime as a crime against society was under the jurisdiction of the civil courts. The church, however, would say no. The priest is not a citizen of any country, but is a creature of the church, and as such can only be adjudicated under church law and only tried in a church court, what they called a canonical court. Today, after many centuries of struggle over these issues, if a priest commits a civil crime, he's tried in a civil court, be it a capital offense or a traffic ticket. Canonical courts are reserved for the internal discipline of the church and may or may not have any bearing in civil court. But 850 years ago, these were serious, contentious matters, and King Henry II Henry Plantagenet was so vexed by them that directly or indirectly he was responsible for a brutal murder committed by four of his knights, a murder that took place on the consecrated ground of the cathedral at Canterbury. It was the murder of the archbishop himself, Thomas Becket, an action that shook Christian Europe to its core and has reverberated throughout the ages, inspiring a great 20th century play and an Italian opera. The reason we're here. The opera, Assassinio nella Cattedrale, Murder in the Cathedral by Ildebrando Pizzetti. 
I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Thomas Becket and the devastating falling out between himself and his king, Henry II, was a story rife with dramatic possibility. I find it kind of amazing that no one attempted to dramatize the story until 1884, and that was Alfred Lord Tennyson, some 40 years before T.S. Eliot approached it in his verse play in 1935. In 1934, T.S. Eliot was approached by church leaders to produce a play for the 1935 Canterbury Festival. He chose the story of the assassination of St. Thomas Becket, certainly to tie his dramatic offering to the very place it happened in history. He also chose it to comment on what was going on in Europe at the time, the co-opting of Christianity by the Nazi regime in Germany. The play was quite successful at the festival and made the move to the West End where it played for a number of months further. In 1951, it was turned into a film with Eliot's collaboration and went to the Venice Film Festival where it won the Grand Prix. I personally find all this rather strange because the play is not an easy nut to crack. Eliot tells the story through his thick poetic language, uses symbolic characters to help carry the message. He even uses a kind of Greek chorus to comment on the action of the play and on Thomas's thoughts. The ending, the chorus, the poetry, it would seem that all these things work to put the audience at arm's length from the story. But strangely enough, these theatrical frames do just the opposite. Audiences seemed to be very taken with the play when it was first performed, and it was actually a factor in Eliot's being given the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1948. That brings us to the Italian composer Ildebrando Pizzetti, a name that many of you may have never heard before this very moment. Pizzetti was the son of a piano teacher born in Parma, Italy, in 1880. He was, from a young age, much more interested in theater than he was in music, often writing plays for his schoolmates to perform. Music eventually won out, though, and he entered the Parma Conservatory, where he received his diploma in 1901. He worked for a while as an assistant conductor at the Teatro Reggio in Parma, and later he was appointed to the faculty of the conservatory in Florence. It was in Florence, the birthplace of opera, that Pizzetti became fascinated with early music and the principles that the creators of opera based their works on in that early 17th century. For those composers, people like Jacopo Peri, Giulio Caccini, and Claudio Monteverdi, Emphasis was not so much on tunes or melodies as it was on carrying the dramatic text in clear, forthright, but lyrical music. For them, the drama was the thing. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that Pizzetti, as an opera composer, was attracted to ancient stories and dramas. Most of his operas, and there were about 15 of them, were derived from biblical or ancient Greek and Roman stories. 
In the late 50s, he became attracted to Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral and launched into it. This subject was perfect for Pizzetti because he was drawn to subjects in which the characters struggled with ethical or philosophical issues, dramatic situations that called for big choral scenes and historical events steeped in religious meaning. Luckily, T.S. Eliot's verse play was just the perfect vehicle for a composer of Pizzetti's talents. In a way, the opera's a kind of passion play, much like the original Eliot drama. It's a play of ideas, not of emotions. And Pizzetti stays close to that definition of the piece by not allowing the music to overcome the drama. It's not, like so many other Italian operas, a melodrama, but true drama, with all importance being given to the words and the dramatic conflict between King Henry and his archbishop. The opera Murder in the Cathedral is a true music drama, and it opened a whole new lyrical world to the audience at La Scala on March 1, 1958, when it premiered with Nicola Lemeni Rossi in the lead role. The libretto for Pizzetti's opera was based on a direct Italian translation of the T.S. Eliot play and edited by the composer himself. You'll find that all the poetic imagery and story elements of the play are quite faithfully followed in this piece, which begins with the female chorus. It's the women of Canterbury singing of their fear and foreboding as Thomas Becket, their archbishop, returns from seven years in exile. Three priests explain the conflict between Becket and King Henry, which caused the prelate to leave the country for France and all await his arrival on a cold, wintry night. When Becket arrives, he muses aloud that even though he's evaded his enemies this long, they're circling around him like birds of prey, just waiting to attack. Four tempters visit Becket, four different aspects of his inner self. Each one offers a way out, an escape or a way of avoiding conflict with the king and perhaps even overpowering him through revolution. He denies them all, but it's the last which is the most troubling. The fourth tempter pushes him to actually seek martyrdom, that the ultimate power over the king would be spiritual, coming from a special place reserved for him in heaven. This would, of course, be tantamount to suicide. In his last sermon to the faithful on Christmas morning, 1170, Becket speaks eloquently to them of the mystery of the Christmas Mass, at one and the same time celebrating both the birth of Jesus and the crucifixion of Christ, the source of all martyrdom. A few days later, four knights arrive, accusing Thomas of treason and other crimes against the state. He answers that he will only answer to Rome or to God himself. The knights, servants of the king, promise to return with swords. As the Latin funeral hymn, the Dies Irae, is sung in the cloister of the church, Becket commands his frightened priests to unbar the doors of the cathedral. But the knights return, accusing him again of treason. Thomas stands his ground as he condemns the knights for treason against God. They strike him down on the cold stone floor of Canterbury Cathedral. (laughs) 
I'm delighted to welcome back to Opera Talk my good friend, Dr. Bart Thurber, professor of English literature at the University of San Diego. Bart, mm-hmm. welcome back. Thank you. Good You're to be my here. go-to guy when I've got an <laughs> opera that's based on a piece of English literature, particularly this. This yeah. really makes an awful lot of sense for you to be here because I know you're a great admirer and a lover of T.S. Eliot. Yes, I am. And yeah. Eliot, of course, wrote the uh, the play, Murder mm-hmm. in the Cathedral, uh, upon which this particular opera is based. But let me start with something I've always thought a little strange about Eliot, and I guess mm-hmm. I really haven't looked into the background. He was born in St. Louis. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was So he's a, originally an American, yes, but he, he ends up a, a, ultimately a British citizen? Yes, he does. And some of that was that he was an Anglophile. He wasn't born an Anglophile. He goes to Harvard and um, then has a scholarship to England. Mm-hmm. And um, I think his first love was kind of what we would call comparative literature now, but mostly with English as opposed to American mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely clear. Most of his writing is kind of about world literature or English literature as opposed to American Mm -hmm. literature. And by that, I mean his essays. Mm -hmm. Um, His great work, The Wasteland, is set in London, not New York. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of it, too, was that when he first went to England in the first decade of the 20th century, he linked up with with the the avant-garde, especially Ezra Pound, uh, the people who were inventing modernism, and that happened in London first in mm-hmm. the English language before it happened in you know, like New York or San Francisco. So this really was great background for the eventual production of this play mm-hmm. in, I believe, 1934, yeah. uh, Murder in the Cathedral. What do you think it was about that subject that drew him to write a play about it. Yeah. Aside the fact that he was commissioned, of course. But, yes, he but was. why that um, particular story? I think there are multiple strands to tease out there. Part of it was in the mid-30s, that's um, a decade and more after The Wasteland, he was himself well into not so much a religious crisis, religious spiritual crisis, but more like a quest that would eventually culminate in terms of his own work in the Four Quartets. And as a matter of fact, some of the verse from Murder in the Cathedral that the producer asked him to cut uh, wound up being in Burt Norton, which is one of the four quartets. Reading the play, it's very dense. Okay. It, it, it seems almost anti-dramatic. What it, can you set it in context? I mean, is, is this the first play of its kind for a long time? First, it's, it's in verse, yeah. which hadn't happened since... When? Well, uh, the, the last time that verse in drama worked effectively dramatically, it might be the 16th or 17th or 18th century, the ni- various 19th century uh, poets and writers attempted verse drama. And Eliot talks about that. In, uh, later on, he gave a Spencer lecture at Harvard, and he talked about his desire to combine verse and drama. And one of the things that he wanted to do with Murder in the Cathedral is avoid blank verse because he thought that blank verse um, since Shakespearean days had become sort of archaic and frozen in place and no longer could sound like normal conversation. Mm-hmm. And he needed, for dramatic purposes, to have the verse sound like it was normal conversation. If you didn't know you were, it was poetry, you wouldn't know it was poetry. Why do you think he made the decision to set it, to set this drama as a verse play? Uh, he wrote about that. He talked about that. I think 
he wanted to um, show that verse was not special, that it was not up on a shelf somewhere, that it was not for esthetes and intellectuals and artists. That it could work on a stage. That it could work. Mm -hmm. Um, And he very much wanted to do that. It's an extraordinarily difficult play, I think, to bring off because it is about ideas and there's not a lot of action. Um, I I guess I'm I'm asking you, do you think that's true? I do. But I also think um, there were reasons why Eliot thought he could do that and why other people thought they could make uh, dramas or operas based on the play. One is the example first of Chekhov and then later Ingmar Bergman, that there were the operas from 1958, I think, mm-hmm. somewhere around yeah. there. Well, that's uh, at the heart that when Bergman was you know, creating his great um, movies, films, The Seventh Seal, things like that, about um, similar kinds of interior psychic, spiritual um, um, trauma and conflict. Mm-hmm. And before that, Chekhov was around doing this. I mean, you, if you stage a Chekhov play, what you see is a bunch of people sitting around or standing <laughs> around, and that's, and that's it. That's also true of George Bernard Shaw, by the way. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And so there is, there's precedent for that sort of thing. And yet there is this basic dramatic problem, which is not only does nothing happen, people are talking, the conflict is all off stage. The king never... Who, the king never appears. Who, who Beckett has the problem, who, who orders Beckett murdered, never is, is there. Right. And the audience knows how it's going to end. <laughs> and we know he's going to be murdered. The title gives us that, even if we don't know the Beckett story. Yeah. So that's incredibly challenging to do. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure Eliot solved that problem completely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I think Pizzetti solves the problem because it's, a, it's an opera of ideas based on a play of ideas. But it seems to me in the singing and in the music, you've got subtext that can't be completely successfully brought off yeah. in spoken drama. And to that, I would add that singing is itself an action. Right. And that Instead of just having static talking heads, you've got uh, the singing of the chorus. There's a chorus mm-hmm. who express varying moods and throughout the play. And um, that there is music um, gives us a whole other dimension in which action can happen. Absolutely. You can, you know, yeah. the, the singers are both physically acting as well as singing. So, Bart, thanks so much for your insight. You're welcome. Appreciate My pleasure, Nick. Beckett and his king is a mini-series waiting to happen, and whoever they hire to write the musical score could do a lot worse than use Pizzetti's opera as inspiration. There's lots of atmospheric music setting the scene, as in this orchestral introduction that I was just playing. You might have noticed that there was something of a Gregorian chant flavor about the tune. It's got that flowing, curlicue shape that we recognize from medieval chant.
chant flavor can be found throughout the entire opera. And in fact, an actual chant tune is quoted near the climax of the piece. It's the famous Dies Irae from the Requiem Mass of the Roman Catholic Liturgy. This was the hymn that was traditionally sung during funerals, and it's been used many times by classical composers to denote a sense of dread or death in their music. Hector Berlioz most famously quotes it in the last movement of his Symphonie Fantastique to conjure up a vision of witches and devils torturing the soul of the deceased hero of the symphony. It blares forth from the brass section like this. Pizzetti doesn't quite use it in this sinister way. And in fact, he's just following the T.S. Eliot play and quoting it. The stage directions in the play read, Dies Irae is sung in Latin by a choir in the distance. In the opera, the men's chorus of priests sings the original chant hymn upstage in the darkness, while the women's chorus comments on the text of the hymn, as well as on the impending murder of the archbishop. Besides these ancient touches, we can hear the influence of the Impressionists in this score, especially the style of the French master Claude Debussy. Listen to this passage. These are Debussy chords with that watery, bell-like feeling that we often get from listening to French Impressionistic music. Even though Pizzetti was loath to write big melodies for his singers like Puccini did, he certainly could write some lovely tunes. Here's a marvelous example that we hear during Beckett's return from exile. We might even call it Thomas's tune. Hear Thomas's tune a number of times in the opera. Here it is in a different key and with some variation in the notes.
There are also shifts in the music as the drama develops, with different music accompanying the entrance of certain characters. For instance, a signaling of a change in emotion or psychology. Here's the music that cues the entrance of the knights who will eventually murder Thomas. It has a kind of English jollity about it, marking these men as representatives of the king and totally out of sync with the cathedral surroundings, the holy man before them, and the priests and the people who are witnessing all of this. If you're picking up the Pizzetti is writing opera in the traditional Italian style, you're both right and wrong. As I said before, the composer has no time for numbers, for arias, and he tries very hard to bring drama back into balance with the music. But you can still find many ways in which, like Verdi and Puccini before him, he tells the story through music and uses music to communicate the many levels of human drama coursing through the story. It is, after all, opera. There is one CD of the opera, Murder in the Cathedral, readily available, and one DVD, both of which will be helpful in helping you prepare to see it. The CD is from the 1958 world premiere at La Scala, available on the budget Operadoro label, with the original cast under the direction of Gianandrea Gavazzini. Nicola Rossi-Lemeni sings the role of Thomas, and the great Turkish soprano Lila Genser portrays one of the two female choristers. This is a terrific performance, and my only reservation is that the sound is very dated. The DVD is a production emanating from the cathedral in Bari, Italy, with the Orchestra Sinfonica della Provincia Bari under the baton of Pier Giorgio Morandi. The entire opera is performed in the sanctuary of the cathedral, utilizing the liturgical environment as a perfect complement to the story. The Beckett in this production is the famed bass Ruggero Raimondi, and the female chorister commenting on the action is the soprano Pauletta Barocco, who appeared with us a few seasons back as Leonora in Il Trovatore. The sound is great, and the performance is wonderful. This should give you plenty of material to help you get to know Murder in the Cathedral by Pizzetti. The Cathedral is going to be a new experience for audiences, an Italian opera that's not Puccini, Verdi, Donizetti, or Rossini, an Italian opera quite different in style and focus from the works of those composers, an Italian opera that can stand on its own as a masterpiece of the mid-20th century. I know you'll appreciate it and come to love it as I do. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv. Thank you.